Okay, so Galatians 2. Um, this evening is going to be a, a sermon of two halves. Uh, and the half time will be marked by me actually stopping to pray. Because um, what, what I want to do in the first sort of 15 minutes or so um, is just to kind of give you a, an overview of this section of the book of Galatians. Um, it's easy sometimes when you're, you're going through you know, passage by passage and uh, you're, you're, you're looking into the issues that are in that particular section of a chapter and, and you do that week after week. It's, it's, it's easy to kind of miss the wood from the trees. You know, you're focusing on this issue and then this issue and this issue and, and you miss the overview. You miss how it all fits together. So what I want to do in the first bit is just... Um, Give, give you that overview, and, 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 and in doing that, give us a bit of, of the beginnings of an answer to the question of the relevance of the book of Galatians. Um, you know, just as you're listening, uh, even the Christian do that reading uh, a minute ago. It's like it's it's like Paul's travel arrangements from like two thousand years ago. Who cares? Why is that? Why does it matter? Why is it important? We're going to find out a little bit about that tonight. And then, once we've done that, um, I'm going to pray and get, then we're going to get into, actually, why it is that Paul is uh, giving us such a detailed sense of his, his travel uh, and his relationship with the apostles at Jerusalem. But before we do that, just this question of the relevance of the book of Galatians. Um, and in some ways, it makes himself self-evident. You know, we've got in Galatia, we've got a church um, that is faced with theological and spiritual options. Alright, so you might have this idea that, you know, back in the good old days, you know, in the days of the apostles, in the days of the New Testament church, there was no arguments, there was no division, there was no kind of church splits or anything like that. And you sometimes hear people go, oh, if only we could get back to those days. That was brilliant, wasn't it? I'm like, not so much. All right, now here you've got this church uh, in Galatia, and uh, it, it's being threatened. There's, there's, there's division, there's disagreement, there's disunity, there's arguments. Uh, as we'll see uh, later, there's slander. Uh, people are misrepresenting one another. There's power struggles and factions trying to, to win as many people from the church to their point of view as, as, as they possibly can. And, I mean, you're probably sitting there thinking, man, I'm glad we got past all that. I'm glad church life isn't like that anymore. My goodness. Um, but actually, you know, that, that's what's going on. Um, you've got a church that actually feels in many ways very, very similar to so much of our experience of church life. And in this church, there are, there, there is disagreement. There's disagreement about what it means to be a Christian. There's disagreement about what is the gospel. What do we have to believe in order to be genuine, born-again Christians? Uh, and, and for them, it's pretty clear. Finally, we said this last week, we? that, that you know, they've got the gospel that they heard from the Apostle Paul. Um, and then we've got these other guys who've turned up now to the church, and they're saying, well, you know, we'll, we'll get back to this in a bit. You know, Paul was good as, as far as he went, but actually he didn't really understand everything very well. And there's all this other stuff that you need to believe 
and buy into and do if you want to be a proper Christian. Right? You want to be a real Christian, you need to come with us. Um, and, you know, we might sort of be able to identify with that. You know? Um, that actually, as Christians, sometimes, you know, we, we are aware of the fact that there's, um, there, there are differences of opinion, there are arguments, there are disagreements about what it is that uh, the church should believe, what the church should teach, about what we need to believe, about what we need to do, about what we need to, to, to believe, to, to, to be, uh, in order to be an actual kind of proper, proper Christian, genuine, authentic, born-again believer. You know? What exactly is it that we need to believe? And in fact, we might wish that there were only two options, because that would be easier than the whole spectrum of opinions and views that we maybe come across uh, as we're reading, or we're going to festivals, or we're, we're, you know, we can visit other churches, and uh, even sometimes within the life of MIA, you'll hear different things being taught from the front of the church. It's like, well, wh wh who do you believe? You know, and, and, and the danger is you get really cynical and you just think, actually, I'm just not going to believe anyone. Um, you know, you can't even know. Surely all these different opinions, you you can't even know what the truth really is. And uh, it starts making sometimes think, oh, we'll just shrug the whole thing off. Just be a Christian. Just go to church. Don't worry about the doctrine. Don't worry about the beliefs. Just try to live a Christian life. And it's amazing to me how many Christians sort of settle for that. Or, or maybe, uh, and this is a little bit pointed, but, or maybe you take the view that you hear a lot now um, around the Church of England. You may be aware that within the Church of England there are quite a range of theological and spiritual points of view on on pretty much everything. You know, pick an issue, and you will find a whole bunch of different people all in the Church of England and saying completely different things. Um, and, and, and the Church of England, you know, if you listen to you know the the, the, the proper Anglicans, not like they Proper, proper Anglican bishops and stuff like that. And what, what you begin to hear is that, you know, well, the church of England is a very broad church. You know, and, and the strength of the church is that we somehow manage to hold all this diversity and difference together in one organization. And uh, what we need to do is. Like everybody needs to, we can just recognize the legitimacy of everybody else's points of view, and it's okay that we all believe different things, and we just need to keep talking, and we need to live in, and, and this is a, a, a phrase to watch out for, we need to live in, quote, good disagreements. Alright, and, and this, this, this is a phrase that's been made very popular, but... <laughs> This is uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby. I think it's a, the funniest picture of him I've ever seen. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a puppet or something. <laughs> uh, but in a good disagreement, and, and he used this um, in, a, in his presidential address at General Synod last year, and everybody's going, oh, this is brilliant. Uh, this is exactly what the Church of England is about, good disagreement. And actually what it does is it's recognizing um, in some ways, the very, very self-evident fact that the Church of England seems to be um, determined to kind of rip itself apart. Uh, 
if you've any awareness of the wider life of the, the Anglican Church, you'll be aware that there are different groups that are pursuing all these different agendas um, for theology and for ethics and for what we should believe and how we should live as Christians. And um, the, the official response to, to all of this is good disagreement. And, and, and another buzzword that we're hearing a lot at the minute is shared conversations. Alright, where, you know, the important thing is to just keep talking. Um, it doesn't matter whether at the end of that we agree or not, you know, we're not, it's not conversations with any particular goal in mind, it's just, let's just keep talking. Let's just keep talking. Shared conversations, good uh, disagreements, let's hold everything together in, in, in one broad, inclusive kind of church. Now, what do you make of all this? Well, we need to be really, really careful, okay, because there are bits of the Bible. Um, for example, Romans chapter 14, where, where the apostles do seem to be suggesting that, you know what, we do need to be pretty accommodating to one another. You know, that actually, there are issues where Christians can disagree, and it, that's fine. Um, you know, things need to be working out how the gospel uh, applies into a particular cultural context. You might find that Christians, you know, are disagreeing on that, and and Paul's Paul's teaching is that we should, we should you know, don't judge each other. God has accepted them. These are genuine Christians. God's accepted them. You accept them. You don't split the church over this thing, all right? Um, and, and, and particularly in Romans 14, the thing seems to be that uh, when people become Christians, you know what? We often need time and space to work out what it means to be a Christian, to work out, um, all right, well, if, if I'm a Christian, can I, can I keep doing this? You know, what changes do I need to make about the way I live, about the way I relate to people, my relationships, my, my ethics, how I'm using my money, how I'm using my time, my energy? You know, it takes time to work all that sort of stuff out. And, uh, you know, if somebody's been a Christian for like 30 years, and they've been really working hard at figuring out what it means to be a Christian, and if somebody else has been a Christian for three years, if, you know, Paul's like, yeah, people are going to disagree on stuff. Because, you know, somebody's only been a Christian for years. They haven't had the time yet to work everything out. And they might be convinced about certain things. And you've been around the block a few times and you've made those mistakes and you believe different things. But actually, give, give people the space they need to work things out and to make mistakes on that uh, along the way. Alright? People, people need to that they need to have the, the, the opportunity for, to come to their own conclusions as they study the scriptures, as, they, as they're part of the life of the church. And that's going to take time. So give people the space and live with the disagreement that that sort of process is going to generate within the life of the church. All right, so, that, that, you know, in that sort of situation where we are helping one another to grow as Christians and we are working towards a better, deeper understanding of what the Bible teaches, and you know what? Shared conversations are a good thing. Not as an end of themselves, but in order to help us to grow uh, in, in our vision of what it means to be a Christian. Alright, in those sorts of situations, good disagreement is a good thing. Alright? Disagreeing with each other, but 
worshiping together, and we're doing mission together, and we might be disagreeing on some stuff, but actually that's okay. Right? That's, that's, that's one situation. But, but, and this is a huge but um, that we need to, I think, really um, camp out on for a little bit. But when you read Galatians, um, that's not the kind of issue that is being discussed. Right? When you read Galatians, it's not questions about, okay, here are people who are Christians and they're growing into a mature faith and along the way they might make some mistakes or they might arrive at some wrong conclusions. You know, they'll change their mind in a few years, so don't worry about it. If, if this is not, okay, you know, here are people who are Christians coming to slightly different opinions about how the gospel works out in a particular situation. But what's going on in Galatians, in Galatia, is that there's a fundamental disagreement on what the gospel is. At at its absolute heart, how is it that you become Christian at all? How is it you can be reconciled to God at all? Do you need to be reconciled to God? And when we get into a situation where the gospel itself is being disagreed over and being called into question. There is no, there is no conversation, shared or otherwise. All right, there is no category for good disagreements. There is no tolerance. Like when you read Galatians, Paul isn't kind of sitting back. Well, I don't know, that's really interesting. We've got some really interesting insights there. Let's let's sit down and talk about them. Right, what you, what we heard Paul saying is. Right? If, if they're preaching a different gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Now, I don't know. That doesn't have the ring of good conversation, good disagreements to me. You know, that is, seriously, you're not in the church. Right? That's the kind of issue that is at stake here. Paul, Paul isn't validating. He won't even tolerate their point of view. He, he goes nuclear. Okay? I mean, the, the kind of language that we've been hearing from Paul over the last couple of weeks, it's really breathtaking. Right? And, and here he is calling down God's curse on those who are trying to teach the Galatian church a different gospel. That, he says, is really no gospel at all. Right? You might remember from last week, we, we're saying that this is, for, for the church today, these are mutually exclusive options. Right? These are, it's binary. You cannot have you know, the gospel at the heart of the church sharing that space with a different message. Right? You can't do it. That is, that is fundamentally unstable. Right? And, and you're going to destroy the church. You're going to rip it apart because the gospel will always pull the church into a, in, in a different direction to any other message. And if you try to hold them together, you will end up damaging the life of the body of Christ. We've got the gospel that brings us into freedom, as we'll see as we go through Galatians. It brings us into relationship with God. That message that collection of things that we believe to be true about who God is and what God has done for us in Christ. That message is how we are brought into relationship with God. Right? If you change the message, you're not being brought into relationship with God anymore. All right? Paul is going to tell you that you are being taken into 
forces that are by their nature not God's at all. Alright? The gospel will reconcile us to God and will cultivate intimacy with God. Alright? Any other message will alienate us from God. Will, will, will undermine our relationship with God and will drive us out of intimacy with God. Alright? So the church of Galatia is like, right, we've got these options on the table. Um, and of course the big question is, who are we going to listen to? Alright? Which one are we going to believe? That might seem obvious to us, like 2,000 years later, going back and goes, guys, this is a no-brainer, right? This is Paul. But when you're in the midst of these situations, it's a lot less clear who's telling the truth. You know, it's not like Paul's going, hey, guys, uh, here's the Bible, and I'm teaching the Bible, and the false teachers are like, well, the Bible, go to rubbish. We're not interested in that. We've got this whole other thing going on. That's not the way it works. Everybody is quoting the Bible. Right? Everybody has got the Bible as it were open in front of them and saying, look, this is what the Bible teaches. So how do you know when you're listening to people and they're saying, they're both saying we're teaching the Bible, but what they're saying is different. How do you know who to listen to? Right? How do you work it out? Well, this is this is this whole first section of Galatians. Paul is giving them a series of arguments that will help them make an informed decision. Alright, so this section, almost the first half of the book of Galatians, Paul is just giving them a series of reasons why they should listen to him and not the false apostles. I just want to scoot over these. There are two or three of them we've already done over the last couple of weeks. Two or three of them will be doing over the next couple of weeks. But I want you to see how this all fits together into one kind of coherent argument. So the first thing that Paul wants to say is like, right, if you're having to think about what are you going to believe, one of the key questions that you need to ask is, um, this idea, this belief, this doctrine that I'm, I'm engaging with, where does it come from? Right, what is the origin of it? Okay, so for Paul... You know, well, the question you know, is this message that is being presented to me, that is vying for my attention, is this message from God or does it have its origins in human ideas? Alright? Um, just going back to, to this, this diagram. The, um, the default human position, alright, the, the instinctive religious option that fallen sinful human beings will always develop is legalism. Always. Right, we were thinking about this last week. Right, so any, anything that is legalistic has its origins in fallen sinful um, human thinking about God. Right, now, for Paul, we saw a couple of weeks ago, last week, right, Paul is at pains to demonstrate that the gospel he preaches is not of human origin. Right? He didn't receive it from any man, nor was he taught it. He received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul's travel arrangements are so important. Because he is working to show the church of Galatia that he's had no contact with the apostles. Except he had a fortnight, three years in, 
after he'd been preaching for three years and his own apostolic ministry was established, he went up to Jerusalem for a couple of weeks. And then he didn't go again for another like 14 years. Right? So Paul's whole thing is, I wasn't taught this by the apostles. Right? I was unknown to the churches in Judea. Right? He's, he's, he's at pains to show them that the gospel he preaches is a gospel that came to him directly from his experience of Jesus Christ. Right? Secondly, the question of the impact of the gospel. Right? Again, we've seen this um, in, in, in Paul's own testimony. Right? Paul's like, guys, seriously, um, I used to be uh, a persecutor. I used to kill Christians. I used to go from house to house searching Christians out in order to imprison them and torture them into reneging uh, on their faith in Christ. Right? I used to go from city to city looking for Christians to kill. And now I'm preaching the very gospel that I once tried to destroy. Right? So Paul's like, that kind of transformation, that, that, you don't explain that by anything less than an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? So he's building his case. This is why you should trust the message that I bring to you, because of its origin, because of the impact that it has had in, in my life. Thirdly, Paul goes on to talk about his agreement with the apostles. Okay? When Paul eventually does meet the apostles, and they sit down and compare notes, what do they realize? They realize that they are preaching exactly the same gospel. So even though, in a sense, Peter, James, and John, they received the gospel directly from Jesus, Paul received it independently, Paul receives the gospel directly from Jesus. Alright, they both go around the world proclaiming this gospel, and when they meet up and compare notes, they realize that actually their gospel is exactly the same. Alright? So Paul, in, in the reading we've had tonight, is saying, look, as for those who were held in high esteem, or whatever they were, makes no difference to me. God doesn't show favor to them. We'll look at that later. But the key thing is, they added nothing to my message. Yeah? And again, he'll say, on the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. Right? So when they do meet up, they compare notes, hey, we're preaching the same gospel. Right? Fourth thing, Paul's own experience with legalism. Alright? Paul's basic thing is going to be, look, guys, I have walked down the road of this other religion, and let me tell you, it doesn't work. It doesn't bring you to the place where you're in relationship with God. We'll see this next week. We who are Jews by birth, we know that we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in
church by believing what you heard. Right? And sick, and I think for Paul, the most powerful, and this is certainly the place where he spent the most time, as you say, is actually we do need to sit down and study the Bible together. Alright, and he's going to do that, we're going to see that as we go into Galatians chapter 3. He's going to teach scripture. He's going to teach what is written. Alright, so you've got those some ideas, and when you're looking to assess different theological points of view and spiritual points of view and opinions, those are six good ways of doing it. Alright? So I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to start preaching. Okay. <laughs> ah, right. Lord, um, Father, we, we, we just, I love it that the Bible is, is um, you know, it's coherent, it's, it's, it's logical, it's got like an internal argument that develops and, and builds up and, and, and it gathers force as we work our way through it. And I pray that as we consider these chapters of Galatians um, in these your spirit would be at work, helping us to, to make sense of this uh, and to work out what it means for us living here in Ipswich um, uh, in, in the 21st century. You know, Lord, it's, there, there are big, big issues at stake in this book. Um, issues about the integrity and the authenticity of church life and spiritual experience, um, questions of truth and reality. And I pray that as we wrestle with them, that your spirit would be at work, um, inspiring us and exciting us about the fact that actually these things really matter and uh, they, that they open up for us a, a relationship with you that is far, far richer, far deeper, far more profound than anything we could ever have imagined left to our own devices. So Lord, we come to you saying, please, teach us. And not just teach us, like, in our heads, but in our hearts as well, and in our wills, the very depths of our being, where we want to not just understand these things, but to live as individuals and as a church in the light of what Galatians has to teach us. So, Lord, be with us, please, now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Okay, so, um, this is quite a common idea. That doctrine, being specific and precise and explicit about what we believe, is actually a pretty negative thing. The doctrine is divisive. You know, once we start being precise about what we believe and clear about what we believe, you see, that's when we begin to realize that actually we disagree on stuff. And when we disagree on stuff, there's a chance that we're going to fall out. So, Let's all just have a conspiracy of silence, yeah? Let's not talk about the things that we believe, or at least the things that we suspect we might disagree. And then we can all stay united together and, and have a happy time, right? Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Right, think about it like this. Doctrine is like aspirin. I'm pretty sure you've never heard that analogy before. But the thing about aspirin, right, is if you use aspirin in the right way, it can be health-giving and restorative. Yeah? If, however, you know, rather than taking a couple of aspirin to ease a headache or something, um, you take 50 aspirin in a bottle of vodka. 
mean, that's going to give you a headache. Right? That's going to be more. That, that is not. That's not going to end well. Right now, doctrine is like this. When doctrine, because if you have too much of it, it will kill you. I, I don't know. <laughs> is the 
teach the same things, right? That doesn't bring division between Paul and the apostles. In fact, it brings unity. And the fact that they believe the same things is the foundation of their fellowship and their worship and their partnership in the gospel. Right now, Paul, Paul goes to Jerusalem, Galatians 2.2. Paul goes to um, Jerusalem uh, as a result of divine revelation. He's not summoned by the apostles. He's not summoned by Cephas and James and John and told that, you know, you need to come here, by the way, we're going to check you out before you go any further. Paul's like, I went in response to a revelation. Okay, and that's important. We'll come back to that in a minute. And he meets with the apostles privately. And, and a lot of people seem to think that that's, that's a problem. You know, what was Paul worried? That there would be some kind of big public disagreement. Was Paul fearful that they were going to rip him to shreds or disagree with his gospel? No, Paul got his gospel from Jesus. He's like totally sure that the gospel he preaches is true. So why is he meeting privately with these guys? Well, my best guess on this is it wasn't very long ago that Paul was persecuting the church in Jerusalem. There are people in the church in Jerusalem who remember Paul because he banged on their door and put their husband or their wife or their children and they were never there were people in the church of Jerusalem who'd been tortured by Paul and interrogated by him. Right? Paul waltzing into the church of Jerusalem for a powwow with believers. That is, that, that needs to be handled very carefully. That's a situation that needs pastoral management. I think that's why he meets privately. Not because he's afraid of, of, of being shown to be wrong in terms of what he's teaching. But he's meeting privately because he cares about the life of the church in Jerusalem. He doesn't want to cause aggravation and pain unnecessarily. Right? And what are we told? Yeah, of course they did. They added nothing to my message. In fact, what do they see? That the same God who we are related to, who we are worshipping, who is at work in us and through us, is the same God, Paul, that we see in you working in you and working through you. Right? What they discovered is their understanding of the gospel is what gave them the basis on which to enter into fellowship with one another. I mean, you must have noticed this yourself. You know, you can travel halfway around the world, and like literally, and you can meet a Christian who you've never met before. And you can feel a deep fellowship and intimacy with that person, even though you know nothing about them, but because you know you believe the same things. Right? Doctrine, amongst Christians, doctrine is something that builds unity and builds fellowship. It doesn't cause division. It causes unity. Right? Because of this, partnership. Alright? Peter, Cephas, and Paul are able to, they're able to work together. They're able to work independently of one another, trusting one another with their different calling.
circumcised to the Jews, Paul's able to go to the Gentiles. You know, neither are feeling they need to check out on each other or, or, or make sure that each other's doing the right thing. No, they just get on with it and do it because they trust one another. Why? Because they have the same gospel. And it's not hermetically sealed. You know, Paul, you read through the book of Acts, everywhere Paul goes, the first place he goes to is the synagogues. Right? So it's not like Paul going, well, I'm going to the Gentiles, so I can't speak to anybody else. But the fact that Paul gets himself thrown out of more synagogues than I can shake a stick at doesn't cause a problem for Peter. Peter's not going, hey, this is my ministry, this is my patch, get off my patch. It's not like that. Because there's trust, there's partnership, there's fellowship. Because they are preaching the same gospel. Doctrine unites us. It frees us to cooperate and to celebrate what God is doing in each other and what God is doing through each other. It strips away envy and insecurity and protectionism. You know, this is my, this is my domain. Get out. You don't need that. When you're clear on doctrine, because you've got the unity, fellowship, trust, and partnership. You can't have unity when you disagree on the core issues. Because, you know, I can't trust you. And you can't trust me. And no, I'm not going to invite you to come and share in my ministry here because you're going to say something different from me. See, you only have unity, fellowship, and partnership when you know kind of unity and fellowship that is based on a conspiracy of silence. You know, let's not, let's, let's not talk about the things we disagree with because we might fall out. That's not, that's not spiritual fellowship. That's not gospel unity. That's dishonest. That's deceitfulness. Right? Gospel partnership, fellowship, unity, true unity, the unity of the Spirit comes from our common commitment to, our common belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our unity is built on doctrine. Doctrine unites Christians. It doesn't divide them. And you see, that's what Paul has gone to Jerusalem in order to secure and to demonstrate. Or, no, let me put it better than that. That is why the Holy Spirit sent Paul. Because Paul, uh, the Holy Spirit, cares deeply about proper, God-centered unity in the life of the church. The Holy Spirit cares deeply about fellowship, cares deeply that our relationships are in good order, cares deeply about partnership in the work of the gospel. And so it is the Holy Spirit who sends Paul to Jerusalem in order that the unity of the church might be put on display and expressed and, and shown to the world and to the church. Right? Paul, when Paul talks about uh, you're running in vain, I went because I, I, I wanted to check that I, I wasn't running and that I haven't been running in vain. He's not worried 
that they're going to show that his gospel is not right. He's going to be worried in case there is this unity in the life of the church. That's how important this is to Paul. He wants to, he wants to secure the express, unambiguous, demonstrable unity of the church in, in what? In, in showing that everybody believes the same gospel. That's the thing. If I can show that, that, that me and Cephas and James and John, even though we're doing ministry in completely different parts of the world and a different ethnic groups, if we can show that we all believe the same gospel, then we are demonstrating our unity to the world and to the church, including the church at Galatia. You see, Paul's tackling these false teachers, right? And probably, reading Galatians, what it seems like is that these false teachers at Galatia are doing, they're, they're working to discredit Paul. It's a kind of ad hominem argument where they are attacking Paul as a way of undermining what it is that Paul is teaching. Yeah? So, you know, the thing about Paul, guys, is um, he's, not, he's not a proper apostle, is he? He's not like James and John and, and Peter. Like, they were actually with Jesus during his earthly ministry. Paul? No, not so much. Yeah, if you want a proper apostle, really, you need to put Cephas, James, John. And you know, everything Paul learned and picked up from those proper apostles. But he couldn't even get that one. The real pillars of the church are James, Cephas, and John. Paul, he's a bit of Johnny come lately. And uh, he just wanted to get out there and set up his own church and set up his own ministry. And he's gone off with his own half-baked ideas to make a name for himself. He wants to be a somebody. You don't want to listen to Paul. I, I think that's, that makes sense of this disparaging language. You know, as we were reading through Galatians 2, you had this idea of Paul was sort of being a bit snotty about the, the, the apostles of Jerusalem, those esteemed as leaders, those who were held in high esteem, though actually what they were makes no difference to me, um, those esteemed as pillars. Why, this, why is he using that kind of language? Because... In Galatia, the false teachers are saying, if you want a proper apostle, you need to go to Jerusalem. And Paul's whole thing is, all right, well, we went to Jerusalem. And you know what? Those esteemed as leaders, those who you put so much credibility into, those who you recognize as the genuine article, do you know what? They gave us the right hand of fellowship. See, we have unity in the gospel. And our fellowship is based on our doctrine. Paul is showing that the Jerusalem apostles are fully supportive of him. And they are standing with him. And they recognize his ministry. And they are happy to step into partnership with him because they know they believe. Paul is just going for it. 
Because, you see, if the Galatians make the wrong choice, they're going to lose the gospel. And when the church loses the gospel, it's not a church anymore. And it can't be a mission. And it can't bring people into deeper intimacy. The only thing gets the end of this, the only thing they asked was that we should continue to remember the truth. It's the very thing I have been eager to do all of Now what, what's this about? I'll bring this all to a point. Well, you know the way as Paul has been going around writing to the Gentile churches, he's been organizing this collection for the church of Jesus. Read about it in Romans 15. Read about it in 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. The church of Jerusalem is a church that, um, since its earliest days, has been persecuted. Um, you know, there have been Christians who've been exiled. There have been Christians who've been martyred. Um, there have been Christians who've been imprisoned. There are Christians whose property has been confiscated. There are Christians who've lost their jobs. Now that in itself would put a church in an economically fragile position. But alongside that, um, there's famine. And what Paul has been doing is that as he has been going out around the Gentile churches and planting these churches, he's been building into the thinking of, their, of Christians that actually our responsibility is not just to our congregation. But it is to the church anywhere in the world. And where the church is impoverished, where the church is persecuted, where the church is economically vulnerable and fragile, it is the responsibility of the global church to support and to care for the family of God in the right side. You see, the unity isn't just about what we do. Right? Their unity, their fellowship, their partnership comes down to what we do with the church accounts. Think about it as Paul's been building this unity and this fellowship, not just by comparing and contrasting what we believe, but actually by providing caring for those in the church who See, the gospel creates a fellowship and a unity that has cast value. Put it something. And there's a danger that when we think about doctrine and theology and belief, that we become so combative that we forget to care about people. On the other side, there's a danger that we care so much about people that we we don't really care what they believe. We forget to contend for the faith that has been once and for all delivered to the saints. But this healthy doctrinal spirituality, this, this, this biblically based Christianity will always do both. Because our common belief builds 
our common experience with God. This is how we come into the family of Jesus. We're not just being reconciled to God through what we believe, we're being reconciled to one another. And so a church that is healthy doctrinally is going to be a church that cares. Cares for its own. And it cares for the church throughout the world. And I want to be really clear. That is what we are aiming for at the moment. Alright, when we're doing the Jesus-centered life terms and we're really getting into what we believe and why we believe it, right? that's not a divisive agenda. That's the agenda that we bring the compassion and the care that instinctively we know the church to have. That is the agenda that we bring the unity and the fellowship that we In order to find that, we need to work hard. We need to study building. We need to be able to have those hard, difficult conversations. There are risks, aren't there? Going, in, going public on what you really believe about something, when you think there are probably other people in the room who disagree with you on this. That is a frightening place to be. We have to do it. Right? We have to preach seriously. And we have to attend to that preaching. We need to pray for each other. We need to do it with humility. Because when we hit the Bible, I don't know about you, but I am stunned at how often as I'm reading the Bible and realizing that all the stuff I think actually isn't what the Bible teaches. And we have to be united in our commitment to saying, okay, I would be humble about what I believe. And where I discover the Bible teaches something different from what I think, I am willing to repent and I am willing to change my mind. And I'm not going to let my pride get in the road of that. Because admitting you're wrong can be a really tough thing. But if we are going to have the fellowship and the unity and the partnership that we create, it will be built 